Well, good morning again. I'm happy to report that I slept a lot better last night, second night's a charm. Anyone else feel that way? Yeah, it's because you didn't sleep well the first night, and then you went so hard, and then your body was like, forget it, we'll just sleep wherever, it's fine. Um, it has been such a treat to be with y'all. I, I said it last night, and I'm going to say it again. God is doing a really sweet work among you, and it's really fueling and refreshing for me to see as I go back to our little baby church that's two years old. It's been refreshing for my own heart to see what God could do, doesn't have to do, but what he could do in 18 years or 19 years um, to, to imagine a room full of women that are being impacted by the local church. We are big fans of the local church, um, and it seems like you have a really sweet one. So thanks for letting me be with you guys. Um, first night, we talked about being rooted in God, that our habitat is, is the triune God, and that anything less than that will not satisfy. We said that St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And then yesterday morning, we talked about if you're going to walk with God, you need to be rooted in relationships, that we are relational beings by our very nature because our God is a relational God. And so you will not find life satisfaction, longevity in the faith apart from being deeply inter integrated and interdependent in human actual relationships. Uh, last night, we talked about Sabbath rest, and I wanted to kind of clean up a few thoughts that I I, someone asked me a question that reminded me, I didn't say the thing that I love to say um, when it comes to, in the, in the how-to of rest. Um, because rest roots us. Rest, rest roots us. Just like we said, more than Israel kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept Israel, right? And more than we're going to be faithful to the Sabbath, God is going to be faithful to us through the Sabbath. And it's going to root our faith so that when the cultural storms come, when, when the political elections come, when cancer comes, when what you name it comes, you're rooted and you're ready to go. Um, what, someone asked me the question, when you, if you have like a regular extended time with Jesus every day in a season, should your Sabbath look any different than that? And my, my, I don't have a full answer to that other than I, I think it should look a little different, just a little. Um, using marriage as an analogy, uh, my husband and I have, have date nights. We, we do regular date nights. Those are awesome. Or date days. Actually, it's kind of more like breakfast now that the boys are older. Um, date mornings and walks. We walk our dogs together. But there's something about having an extended time with him where we're unrushed and we're unhurried. We're completely unplugged. That's different. That nourishes our marriage in a different way than our regular date nights. Our regular date nights are kind of like in the flow as we go, right? And then there's something about getting away a couple times a year as a couple that's just, we're unhurried, we're, we're not rushed, we're not trying to accomplish, we're literally just being together. And so Sabbath is kind of that. It's this unrushed, unhurried, we don't have to quick hurry up, get that quiet time in, or quick tell me what I need to know so I can go and do the thing. It's a little bit more unrushed and unhurried. It's a little bit more time to be with, with the Lord. That being said, if you have like, she said, I have pretty extended quiet times every day. I'm like, praise God for a season like that. Um, so yeah, it shouldn't look drastically different. If you're getting to have unrushed, unhurried time with God most of your days, it, it doesn't need to be this crazy distinction like I wear a sequin dress on my side. You know, I don't know. But it, it, the point is this. The point is fellowship with God, unhindered, unrushed, unhurried fellowship with God. And that's usually a commodity in our world. Um, the, the image I like to use for Sabbath time is, I tell women, if you feast one day a week with the Lord, 
That allows you to nibble throughout the week. Not that I want you to nibble throughout the week, but life happens and babies throw up and husbands forget their keys and fill in the blank, right? You get called in for an extra shift at work or there's a crisis, in, a marriage in crisis in your church and you need to do counseling that morning and you thought you were going to do quiet time and instead God's given you a good work to walk into, right? So I'm not saying the goal is that you just nibble all the time, but life happens. And so if you have this anchored, unhint, like unrushed time with the Lord and you feel with him, you can nibble when life throws stuff at you. Because you know, I know where my heart is this week. So every, every time in my Sabbath, I feel like God gives me an anchor, a verse, a passage of scripture, a chunk, a thought, a word, a phrase that I'm like, that's the thing that fueled me this week. So maybe one week it was um, their face, those who look to him, their faces become radiant. They will never be afraid from Psalm 34. So it's like that, that was the verse that spoke to me, that we, the Lord used it. And so when I have free time or when I'm in the car line, I'm, I'm just sitting there kind of mindless. I'm like, oh, yeah, Psalm 34. That's where my soul is this week. I can think about that. Lord, would you make the person next to me, would you make their face radiant? My son, he's full of, he's full of fear. Would you make his face radiant? Do you see how that feast then it invites us to nibble throughout the week? So that's kind of the, the concept, the word picture that helps me. If I have this feast time with Jesus, life can happen and we're still going to be deeply connected. Just like if I've had a great weekend with my husband and we've had a night away, life happens and we're two ships passing in the night, you know, going to soccer and going to baseball and we're deeply connected because we had that sweet time together. Does that make sense? Um, so that, I just wanted to make sure I clarify that. Like we feast with the Lord on our Sabbath. That's the imagery. Okay, so rest roots us. It roots us, in, and, and it's not one of those things that the world's going to celebrate and say, oh, good for you, you did your Sabbath time. It is, it's a hidden, quiet thing, just like roots growing. I mean, unless you have one of those really cool, clear, like, plant things that you use in a kindergarten classroom to show how roots grow, you don't watch roots grow. It's not flashy. It's not on the front. It's not on the forefront, right? They just, they do their thing quietly, faithfully. They just do it. It's a hidden, beautiful work. And our culture doesn't like hidden things, does it? We like flash and scene and all, all that. This quiet work of Sabbath, it does its work in you. It does its work in you and it deepens your roots. So this morning, we're kind of going to land the plane talking about to what end? Why? Why are we rooted? What is the purpose of all of this? So this talk is rooted to reflect and rooted to reach. We are rooted to reflect, and we are rooted to reach. And, and we're going to actually have two scriptures that we're going to dig into, one for reflecting and one for reaching, because I, I just think they're two very different concepts that we're going to kind of try to cover. Um, there's, there's this biblical word that you probably don't talk a lot about. I don't talk about it a lot. Um, it's, it's a Greek word called telos, and it means the end. Maybe if you're a biology person and you know about telomeres, which are like the little caps on the end of your chromosomes. Um, I'm doing this because they're like little X chromosomes. They got little caps on them, like little gloves kind of. Um, those are your telomeres, and they're your telomeres because they're at the end of your chromosome. So it's, it literally just means the end. The end. What is the end? And the purpose of teleology is what is the purpose? Where to what end cre of creation? Like why are we even here? Where are we headed as the church? What's our ultimate end? As believers, where are we moving towards? Why? Why all of this? Why mission? Why church? Why worship? Why do we do this? Right? And, and we don't think about these things a lot, which is funny, because the ends really do affect the means. Right? 
So we're such a short-term people. We are short-term memory people. We're doing something for next week. We're not, I mean, maybe you guys are. We're not doing a great job with retirement. I'm just trying to make it through the week, guys. Like, do we have dinner tomorrow, right? And that, that, that's kind of how we live in the church is, okay, we're doing our thing. We're doing all this. But to stop, to kind of pull the car off the road and go, why? To what end? All of this. Why are we doing all of this? Um, Roots don't exist for the sake of roots. That's not the purpose of roots. Roots have a purpose, and they're deeply, deeply significant. But the point of the root is to nourish the tree. And the point of the, the, the rest of that nourishment is that the tree would bear fruit. It has an end in mind. And so the root's work is shown in the fruit that the tree bears or does not bear, right? That's the point. And so our, our connection to God, all of those things, they have a purpose and they have an end. They have a purpose and an end. The Westminster Catechism, question number one. I grew up in, in the Presbyterian circles for a really long time, and I really appreciate the catechisms. Um, the first question, what is the chief end? And when it says end, that's telos. What is the chief telos of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or if you're John Piper, you, you kind of add the to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So the purpose of everything that we do in the church is the glory of God on display. And by God's good grace, the glory of God is our great good. He has tied the two together in covenant and said, I'm attaching myself to you so that what I choose to do is for your good and for my glory. That's the purpose of everything we do. That's the reason you, you are a nurse. That's the reason you are a mom. That's the reason you're in school. You fill in the blank. That's the reason we're rooted. The point of all of this, roots aren't being shown, but they're deeply significant. These roots exist that we might grow fruit that would glorify the name of Jesus in a watching world for all eternity. That's the purpose. And so kind of a quick, what is the church's end? Where do we get this idea of what is the purpose of the church? Obviously, we know it's to glorify God, but how? How? In what way is the church to glorify God? And, and I'm going to give you two, three images or three words, three chunks of scripture at this point. The first is the Great Commission. I hope when you think of the church, you think of Matthew 28. I hope that's what you think of, the purpose of the church. Why? Why? What is our job? Before Jesus left this earth, the resurrected Jesus... His, his believers are standing, his disciples are standing around. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, <clears throat> to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. First of all, just stop there. I love the scriptures. I love the honesty. They're standing in front of the resurrected Jesus who's been with them for 40 days. And they're worshipping him. And there's that line. But some doubted. Isn't that sweet of the Lord? Even in the midst of all that we've seen, God says, hey, there's space. There's space for doubt. Yep, that's okay. You're with me. I love that. Some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's that Trinity. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
This is the purpose of the church. If the church needed a mission statement, this is it. Jesus' last words before he ascends back to the Father and says, this is what you're to do while I'm with, with the Father until I return. You're to, you're to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God. And I'm with you. I'm going to empower you to that end. So that's the purpose of the church. That should be the purpose of our lives. Um, another, another place where we see kind of the purpose of the church, and we've been, we've been in this book a lot this week, um, weekend, is John 15. I'm going to be read it earlier. I'm going to read it again because I want you to hear the living and active word of God. So I'm going to read John 15, 1 through 11. This is, again, Jesus before he died talking to his disciples about why. Why all this is about to happen. To what end? I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, here's some telos, here's some teleology. By this, my Father is glorified. How is God glorified? That you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you will keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? Here's teleology again. To what end? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Why does the church exist? The church exists to make disciples. The church exists to abide in God's love, to bear much fruit, to be full of joy to the glory of God. That's why we exist. That's why the roots exist. That's why we're doing all this work we talked about, that strenuous work and that spontaneous work we talked about the first night. Why we do all of that is for this. It has an end. It has a purpose. And it's not just our comfort. It is literally the glory of God our, and our maturity in him and his, and his fullness on the earth. Um, another is, is the, just the little example of, that Jesus gave of the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. One of them, it's, it's, a small seed that becomes a great tree in which the birds come and nest. We have, we have, um, we bought a house in a great school district because uh, we wanted our kids to go to a good public school for high school. And our boys were praying for two things, a tree and a pool. And we got the tree. Um, we didn't get a pool, which is fine. Um, the fact that we got a tree and it's a massive tree and it's precious every Every morning there's this couple that walks, an older couple, and they walk the neighborhood very slowly, and they, they come and they sit in our front yard, and they rest under the shade of our big, huge tree, because there's not a lot of shade in San Diego. And it's such a sweet picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. Uh, we don't know these people, I and mean, we've tried to talk to them, but they speak another language, so it's really hard to talk. Um, so we've done, like, we've given them water and kind of gestured a little bit, and this is our tree, welcome, you know. Um, 
But it's such a sweet reminder in the morning to see it and go, that's what this should be. The kingdom of heaven, the church is supposed to be this deeply rooted, stable tree that provides structure and stability for those walking by who aren't even in Christ, for, for the, the marginalized of our society, for the homeless, for the foster, for the, the refugee, that the church is, is so deeply rooted. It has something to offer the world in blessing, even those who don't know him should be blessed by your church. That if, if Lighthouse Church didn't exist, that Torrance, California would be different because it didn't exist. Or if little tiny Center City Church in La Mesa didn't exist, that our city would be changed for the worse because of it. That's what, that's what Christ says, that your presence on this earth should matter, that you are the light on a hill, right? The city on a hill, you are a light that shouldn't be hidden. Um, that's the purpose of all of this. So we are rooted for the glory of God. We are rooted to bear much fruit. And so what we're going to do for the rest of our time is we're going to kind of dig into rooted to reflect and then rooted to reach. Rooted to reflect and rooted to reach. Um, I'm going to read to you. So if you have your, if you have your Bible, we're going to be here for a little while. First uh, Peter 2, 8 through 9. We're just actually 9. We'll do 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's teleology again. Why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you hear the end statement in there? The why, you are, and he gives us this beautiful litany of things that we are, identity in Christ. If you're wrestling with identity, this is a great passage to memorize. And then he says, why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. We are to reflect him to others. Now, if you were a Jewish believer and you heard this statement, this would have been jaw-dropping. Because there was a specific priesthood, and it was a specific group of people, and it, it had nothing to do with um, your, your, your skill. It was literally, you were born into a line. If you were born into the, the line of Aaron, you were a priest, and they were special. They didn't have the land. They had certain jobs to do. And so when he says, you are a chosen race, yes, we know that. Okay, yep, we were the chosen race. We're God's people. You are a royal priesthood. That would have been jaw-dropping for a Jewish audience. No, 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 you got that wrong. I'm not the priesthood. Actually, that's, that's those people, right? And God says, no, that's not how this works. You are, you are a priesthood to God. And we have hints of this in Genesis. It just the Jewish mind didn't get it because there was such a clear distinction between the priests who did the, the good spiritual work and everybody else, right? And so one of, the, one of the beautiful things that happened in the Reformation was that the, the division between the sacred and the secular was kind of torn, and, and people got the, the word of God again, and they realized, oh, it's not just the priests who have a special connection to God. We, we are all priests. That's scriptural, the priesthood of all believers, which means we all have a holy work to do. It's not just those, it's not just your pastors. In fact, Ephesians 4 tells us that the pastors and the evangelists, um, they exist to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. You have a work of ministry to do as a teacher, as a stay-at-home mom, as a house cleaner. I don't know what you do, but it is, it is part of being the priesthood of all believers to do that good work. 
And so your work matters to God, and your work can be deeply spiritual. It can be deeply spiritual. That's what we're going to talk about when we talk about this rooted to reflect. Uh, one of the things that we learned when we moved to San Diego, we were part of this vocation, this, uh, it's called vocational learning infusion community or something like that. Really confusing. Um, the point of it was this. How do we infuse a robust theology of faith and work into the local church? How do we help people understand that God doesn't just care that they be good workers, which is important, and they don't steal paper clips, and they're honest on their time reports, and, and that they share their faith? That's really important. Please keep doing all of those things. But that their work, what they do for the bulk of their week, actually glorifies God. It has potential to actually glorify God. That good work done glorifies God. And so it's not that just that you get to glorify God when you come to church on Sunday. Please come to church on Sunday. That's a huge part of what it means to glorify God. But that's not the only lane to glorify God. Whatever you do, it says in Colossians, in word or in deed, do it all to the glory of God. And so how do we do this? How do we, how do we start to have a robust theology of faith and work, that you are doing ministry as you go about your work. Um, and it's as you share your faith, but it's also as you work. And so one of the things we learned, which was, it was like paradigm shifting for me and my husband. We had grown up in college ministry. In college ministry, well, we're raising up people to go evangelize and disciple. That's the work I do. And so to understand that architecture glorifies God and that nursing glorifies God, and that teaching glorifies God because it bears his image on the world was deeply significant to me. It helped me understand our, the people in our church, the people I interact with. Most people are not going to go into vocational full-time ministry. Most people are going to go do normal jobs, and your normal job matters deeply to God, and you can do it in a way that's like a priest, that's a ministry. And so all work that's legitimate work images God in three ways. God is a creator, he's a maintainer, and he's a restorer, okay? So we, we talked about Genesis 1 a lot this week. God creates, he speaks out of nothing, ex nihilo, creates everything out of nothing. He's a creator God, and um, contrary to what a lot of people think, a lot of people are deists, which means that they just believe that, yeah, there's a creator, there's a source, there's someone who created everything, but he just kind of wound it up kind of established the laws of gravity and thermodynamics and all those things. And then he just kind of steps back and goes, cool, done. I'm a, I'm a disengaged watchmaker. Let it run. See what happens. Hope the battery doesn't run out. That's how a lot of the people around us in our culture think about God. That's not our God at all. It says in the scriptures that he upholds everything still with his word. So the same God who spoke and created with his word is literally holding your lungs together and making your heart. He is actively engaged in maintaining everything that he's created. If you, if you don't believe me, go read Psalm 104, where it just says literally, he, he opens his hand and he satisfies the desire of all things. He closes his hand and they are dismayed. They expire. They go to the dust. Literally, right? God maintains all things. If he stops maintaining it, it all falls apart. That's Colossians 1. We talked about that last night. Right? That he is the center of all things, not you. You can rest because he's the center of all things, and he holds all things together. So our God creates, our God maintains, and then our God restores. He comes and he fixes the broken things. He came and he was the mediator of peace between God and man, and he fixes broken things. When Jesus comes to the earth, he heals things. He puts them back to the way they ought to be, right? So all work has some element 
of one or all of those things. Does that make sense? So as silly as this sounds, when I create a chore chart for my family, right, or do our ideal week, I'm creating order. What did God do? It said the spirit hovered over the chaos and it started to create order and structures. When I create a chore chart, I'm creating structure for my family. And that images God. That shows off who God is and God is glorified as I image him in that way. Does that make sense? Okay, so maintain. When I go, this is the silliest one, but every time I I buy toilet paper, right, or milk or bananas, I just say, I'm getting to maintain my household so that my home is a place of security and health and flourishing for these boys. God, would you be glorified in that? Thank you that you maintain me, that you maintain this earth, that you maintain the laws of gravity so we're not flipping off the earth. That's sweet of you. Thank you, God. Let me image you as I maintain the order of our home or I maintain a pantry. Do you see how that changes things? When you start to believe that this matters to God and I get to reflect him to the world, uh, restores, there's so many restorative professions. Teachers, when, you're, when the little girls in your classroom have a fight and so-and-so's not talking to so-and-so and you sit there for your whole lunch period when you were hoping to be alone and you try to mediate conflict between two little girls and you restore peace to the classroom and relationship to those little girls, you've just acted as a priest, an imaged God who restores things. Healthcare professionals, what are you doing? You are restoring people to health, right? Builders, janitors, you are restoring buildings to the position they ought to be in. That matters to God. It reflects his glory. And it's an opportunity to share those things verbally to a watching world. So uh, a pastor that mentored us in this vocation learning infusion community situation, um, he, he talked about how he used this to share his faith all the time. And so he had um, a, a hairdresser who was living a homosexual lifestyle, and he had been built, built a relationship with his, with his hairstylist. And, and he just said to his, I don't know his name, Joe, Joe, can I tell you something? And he said, sure. And he said, God really loves the work that you do. And it reminds me a lot of God. And he said, what? He said, I have never heard anything good about the way God thinks about anything about me, ever. All he hears negative things, because he, obviously they knew the conversations that they had in the past. And he said, my God is an artist, and he makes really beautiful things. And when you cut my hair, I see the passion that you have for cutting my hair, and I see the way you take your time with it, and it reminds me of my God. And he said they had a sweet conversation. I I don't know if this guy came to faith, but they had this opportunity to talk about the Lord based on this conversation. And we've done the same thing. We've done that with maids and hotels. We've just said, hey, do you know that God is really pleased with your work? Your work matters to the heart of God because what you do in maintaining the beauty of this thing, it, it reminds us a lot of our God. It was just a chance to have a sweet connection with people that otherwise you might not get to have that could lead to a really sweet gospel conversation. It is not the same thing as sharing the gospel with someone, okay? Just know that. That's not the same thing. But it could be a door opening towards a conversation about spiritual things that could be sharing the gospel with someone. Do you see how that gives a different inroads to things? It matters when there's an engineer at your church who's working really hard on things and who comes in every Sunday and feels like he just stinks because he doesn't know that much about the Bible and you know, but he's really good at code and he's really good at, and he's coming into church every week feeling like he has nothing to offer for him to know that God is pleased with the work that he does. That matters. 
It matters deeply. Your work matters to God. Our God creates, our God maintains, and our God restores. We get to live out the priesthood of all believers all over the place, in Torrance and in La Mesa and all over the world. Do you see how that has more of an impact than the priests are the one or the pastors are the one doing the holy work and we're going to make all our impact on Sunday mornings and that's how it's going to work? No. No, 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 no. Your rootedness in the Lord, your time with him, your intimacy with him, the things that you do with your day matter deeply to the Lord. They're part of your holy calling as a priesthood of all believers. Now that can impact a city. That can glorify Jesus, right? There's a lot of us that are the priesthood of all believers. Um, yeah. So one of the things that we did with that um, create, maintain, restore, the idea of a robust theology of faith and work, is we started to do these all-of-life interviews um, in this program that we were part of. And so someone would come up, and they would share their, their vocation, and, and they would say, they would kind of go through the paradigm of create, um, creation, fall, redemption, and glory. And they would say, architecture. How does God, how do, how do we see God in architecture? Oh, well, God cares about spaces. He created a garden. He was the architect and the engineer of the Garden of Eden. And he said, this is how I want to put this tree, and this is where I want to do this. And, um, and then fall. Okay, where do we see the fall uniquely in architecture? And they were like, oh, architects are so, architects are so selfish. They just want to see their name on a building. And, and it's, they, they, want, they want to be the little mini creator. So we see the brokenness in architecture. And then we would talk about beauty. Where do you see the potential for Christ to redeem architecture? And then and we think about glory. Uh, there will probably be architects in, in heaven. We're going to have work to do in heaven. How cool is that? They're going to be designing really cool stuff. Um, and so it's just a helpful thing when you, when you encounter a new vocation to ask questions around that. Where do you see God in what you do at work? I mean, these are really cool conversations to get to have with other believers in your small group, right? Well, where do you see unique brokenness in doctors? Well, we think we're the Savior. That's a problem because we're not, right? But we tend to think we have, that we have all the answers. And that's a brokenness that I need to confess if I'm in the medical field the tendency to want to slip in and fix everything, or the despair when I can't fix everything because I'm not actually God. So anyway, I hope that helps you guys just understand that we, we get to reflect who our God is as we go about our normal daily lives. So we are rooted to reflect. We are also rooted to reach. We are rooted to reach people. Um, to bear much fruit. So 2 Corinthians 5. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, 14 through 21 is what we're going to read. These are big chunks of scripture. And I hope that you have time over the next couple of weeks to kind of take a little while and drill deeper into some of these passages we've gone. I, what I want to do this week is I want to go and I just want to sit in John 15. The Spirit's just... There's more there for me. I know there is. And I've studied it for hours. But there's more. And I want to go study it. I want to drill back in and see what God has for me in the next few weeks in John 15. Because that's where my heart is right now. And so I hope that you go back and drill. I mean, I, you could do literally an entire series on the verse we just talked about. That you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. And we literally did that in, what, 15 minutes? So please go back, please go back and say, Spirit, where do, you have, where do you have word for me 
in these things we've covered and double click because God has, God has good for you in his scripture and it's living and it's active. And it is, we were talking outside, one of you and I, and uh, John Stott says about the, just, the, just the gospel of John alone, he said it's shallow enough for a baby to swim and deep enough for an elephant to drown. That's the word of God, right? Like it's accessible. You can come and be like, I don't know anything about this and God's gonna give you something. Or you could have studied a passage for your entire life and you are not, your zero level entry pool. You are just toes in the water. You haven't even gotten to your hips yet, right? There is depth of wonder. So I'm saying all that to say we're doing short shrift to all of these passages because we don't have time to double dig, to dig and double down. But I hope you go back and read these because there's so much in each one of these chunks. But now we're going to turn our attention to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. This is Paul. He's writing to the Corinthians. This is his second letter. His first one was scathing. They responded really well to the first letter, and now he's writing them again. Um, and he says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to know why you exist as a believer, this is why you exist as a believer. Christ came and reconciled. He was an ambassador from God. He reconciled you to himself. We talked about this. We said he was the, we were the spoiled vine, right? And he was the one-rooted one. And he came and he died so that we could be reconciled back into God. We could be grafted in. We could abide in him and experience that deep-rootedness in the Trinity. We talked about that. And Paul is saying here, if you understand that and you are in Christ, you are now part of a job. You are part of the family, and now you're part of the family business. This is what our God does. Our God reconciles sinners, and he makes peace. He declares peace between those who have been in enmity with God. He makes peace, and he declares, he declares the good news. And he says, if you are now in Christ, that is your work. So yes, you have your job to do, and your work matters. But you also have a holy calling to do, and that calling is to reconcile people to himself to be his ambassadors, to declare the good news to those who are far from Christ, just as someone once did with you. That's our job. You are an ambassador. You don't get to choose that when you come to Christ. It's not like 
Is that a spiritual gift of mine, ambassadorship? Should I do that? Am I good at making appeals through God? I don't know. It's part of who you are as a believer. I don't think of myself as an evangelist. My husband is a very gifted evangelist. I mean, he could share with this wall, and I swear the wall would be like, I think I would like to receive Jesus Christ. He shares his faith left, right, and center. It's amazing. I don't think of myself as a gifted evangelist, but because I am in Christ, I will do the work of an evangelist. It might not be fruitful. It will glorify God. It might be, I call it clumsy obedience. My obedience to God when it comes to evangelism is quite clumsy. It's awkward. Herky-jerky. It's not as natural as my husband. But Paul writes to Timothy. Paul was a natural evangelist. He shared the gospel everywhere he went. It was his calling. Timothy, very different personality. He was shy. It says in the scriptures he had to drink wine because he had some tummy issues because he was really anxious. And so when he writes Timothy, he's always like, Timothy, you got this, buddy. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live in fear. God hasn't given you a a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and self-control. You can do this, Timothy. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Timothy. So you see these really different personalities. And he tells Timothy in, in 2 Timothy, he says, you, be prepared to share the gospel in season and out of season. He says, Timothy, you need to do the work of an evangelist. He didn't say be an evangelist. He said, you need to do the work of an evangelist. Even if you're not, you don't consider yourself a gifted evangelist. You do the work of evangelism. And now it might, it might be, you know, 30, 60, 100 fold, right? You might not be like Billy Graham, but you, there are people in your spheres where you live and you work and you play that God has good works for you, that no one else can share with them. Jackie Hill Perry can't share with them. Jen Wilkin can't share with them. John Piper can't share with them, but you can. You are the intersection. Dwight Moody said, most people won't read their Bibles, but they will read your life, right? There are people that you are their, you are their experience of Christianity. That is a good work, and it might feel small, and it might feel insignificant, but a soul matters deeply to God, right? Christ would have died for one soul. They matter deeply to God. Where you live, work, and play is is sovereignly ordained by the God of the universe. Psalm 16 says, the boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a delightful inheritance. Daniel, it talks about, he, he sets up kings and he removes kings. God, God puts us where he puts us for great purpose. And there are lost people in your life that don't know Christ that you get to be an ambassador for. Clumsy, awkward, for sure. 20 minutes of scary, oh goodness, we're about to do this. So I'm going to ask you a question. And it doesn't have to be crazy. It doesn't have to be these crazy, long conversations. It's literally, the way we say it is we just, we just, knock, we just knock and see who's open, right? So we're, we're willing to have spiritual conversations. We, we talk a lot about spiritual journey in our church. Um, we just say everyone's on a spiritual journey of some kind. Tell me about your spiritual journey. Literally. That's a super easy conversation. And people are surprisingly more open to talk about these things than you would think. And so we actually have like a little pathway that we've drawn out. And we say, you know, number one is just like confused, not even sure, doesn't even realize they're on a journey, number two. And so we say, are you a one, two, three, four, five? You know, um, it's a great tool. But even you don't even have to have the tool. You can just literally say, tell me about your spiritual journey. I'd love to tell you about mine. So we're looking for opportunities to identify with the person of Christ. 
Um, my son had a speech for his, um, his, his freshman English class. He's in honors English, and they're doing this whole thing on refuge, a whole unit on refuge. They've read all these different books and articles on different ways different people find refuge. And so they have a refuge speech that they have to give to their class. And so he's doing our church. And so is, is, it, is it sharing the gospel completely? No. But it's identifying with Jesus and, and hoping that that would hopefully stir up some more conversations. And so he's going to say, I find refuge in my church and speak on it for three minutes as a high schooler. That's awesome. I'm like, buddy, what a cool opportunity for you to identify with Jesus. And to say, hey, yeah, I'm, my husband says the first baseball practice every time. Just so you guys know, I'm a pastor. That's what I do. It's not weird. I'm a really normal guy. I love baseball. I'm going to love your kids. But that's what I do. I just want to put it out there so y'all aren't weirded out. And if you ever want to talk about that kind of stuff, I love to talk about it. And I can't tell you how many people at least three or four families have come to our church. One little boy we pick up every Sunday, and he comes. And that little boy, I mean, when I think about it, I'm like, I'm not an evangelist. I'm like, no, but I pick up Dylan, and I pick up Elise, and I pick up Damien, and I bring him to church. And God is going to use that in their lives. And I hope that their eternity is changed because I, I add 30 extra minutes to my day to pick up little kids from the neighborhood and bring them to church. That matters to the Lord. It matters deeply to him. It's a work that I can do that none of you can do. None of you can go pick up Dylan, but I can. And none of you can invite Dylan over for dinner and say, hey, we're a safe place in your family that's pretty broken. You can hang out. I'll take you home at nine. That's fine. Come do your homework with us. That matters to the Lord. We have, we have an opportunity as believers, not just an opportunity, but a command and a call to be part of the family business. And what God is about is restoring people to him. And, and I love Paul's language. He says, we are his ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. You don't step into any evangelistic conversations where Christ has not already been. And so sometimes I think evangelism is scary to us. Even that word. I mean, I think some of you automatically hear evangelism and you just shut down and you're like, I do discipleship. I do kids ministry. That's what I do. It's not my spiritual gift. Um, and you automatically feel guilty because you're like, I'm not doing it. I know we're supposed to. We know we ought to do it. And so I hope this is accessible. I hope you're able to go, okay, I can do that. I can identify with Jesus Christ. I can, I can share with people what God is teaching me in the word. I can say, can I, can I tell you about something that I've learned from, from the scriptures this week that's been feeding my soul? And most of the time people say, yeah, tell me about it. Here's a verse. I'd like to explain it to you. Um, God is making his appeal through us. We don't, we don't go and, and, and start evangelism by saying, where would I like to go? What's strategic for me? Hmm. God, God is already at work. And so when we pray, we're asking the question, God, where are you at work? And how can I join you in the work that you are doing? It's God's appeal. We are the instrument. And that, to me, feels like it takes a lot of pressure off, a lot of pressure. God, you're working at this, this public high school. You're working at Helix High School. Now help me and my husband and my boys help us to know where you're working. Move us there. Help us to understand where you're already at work. God is the one who does the reconciling. We just get to be the ambassadors, right? Just like an ambassador represents, they are not the United States. Right? They represent the United States by simply being present and close. Proximity matters. Proximity matters. And so being around people that don't know Christ is how we're going to get to share the gospel with them. And so where you live, where you work, and where you play, that's the, that's the tool. Um, it's a Venn diagram. And so 
pay attention to people that are in the center of that, right? So like, I hope, I hope your life is really simple, but most of our lives are not simple. I want it to be where I live, work, and play is all like one circle. Everything is simple. And it's not, right? So we live in a certain neighborhood. We play sports in our neighborhood and other places, and then we have our, our jobs to do. And so you've got people. You write down three or four people in each one of those Venn diagrams, people that just you kind of bump into a lot or that you have a burden for or that the Holy Spirit brings to mind, and you start praying for them. And then you pay attention to the ones that, where there's some overlap. You say, okay, it could be, not necessarily, but it could be, God, that you are in work in one of these people. Man, that kid was on our baseball team. He's in our classroom. Uh, my little buddy Finn has had one kid who's been in his classroom for three years, and that never happens. And that little buddy, he comes to, we do a thing called Little Man Tribe, where we just pick up the kids in our, that are our kids' friends, and we bring them to our house, and we, it's chaos. It's absolute chaos. Uh, one time I had cuties, guys, cuties as a snack, okay? thought that was a great choice. I, I went inside because it's too much chaos. My husband and a few friends run it. And I came out, and there were cuties in socks, and they were like weapons. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because they were playing dodgeball, so they took off their socks. And then they were like, oh, I have an idea. We should put a cutie in the sock. And then just, and kids had like welts on their arms. So I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm returning your child with four welts and hopefully the love of Jesus, Right? So, so Little Man Tribe. So this little buddy has been in Little Man Tribe for two years now. And I think he's in Christ. I think because Finn has identified with Jesus and said, hey, I want you to come to Little Man Tribe. And he did a little devotion when he was in fourth grade and read a little thing and said, I'm doing a devotion. Does anyone want to join me? And little Jonah joined him every time. And I think Jonah's in Christ now because Finn was obedient to where he lived, worked, and played and literally read a sentence from a book and then closed it. I was like, that's our devotion. <laughs> he, it was precious. It was absolutely precious. Um, but like, or, or another example of, this is my brave little boys. And he, he said, Mom, I'm going to wear my Center City shirt to school today. I'm like, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, there's a boy in sixth grade. We play basketball together. And I think I'm supposed to give him one of our cards for church. And I was like, do you want to practice it? He's like, yeah. He's like, no, I'm just going to sneak it in his book bag. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if that's the way to do it. It might be a little weird. And so I said, you could just walk up to him and say, hey, my dad's a pastor, and we have these little cards. And I thought if you ever wanted to come to church, we could, we could come pick you up. I almost cried. I thought, I'm so proud of you. How simple. It's not hard. It's not, my son can do it. He's in fifth grade, and he does it regularly because he wants people to know Christ. It convicts me convicts me of my lack of movement for the kingdom of God, of how I hoard the spiritual blessings that God has given me, and I become a reservoir instead of a conduit, right? When we, when we are blessed, it is to be a blessing, right? God said that to Abraham way back in Genesis 6, 6, 16. He said, I'm going to bless you, Abram, so that you're happy and comfortable and you have a good life. No, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to many, people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And that's where we're headed. That promise that God gave to, to, to Abraham in Genesis 12, it literally comes full circle in Revelation, right? And he says, you are blessed so that you might be a blessing. And so I, I want you to think, I am, I am being rooted. I am in a church that is feeding me. It's feeding me the truths of God. I have the Holy Spirit, and he is convicting me, and he is comforting me. And I want you to think, who, who am I being blessed to be a blessing towards? 
What's one or two people in my life that I can start praying for? And I'm telling you, if you start praying for someone daily, you will have opportunities with them. God will do it. Start praying for one. If, if, if three to five feels overwhelming, pray for one person in one of those circles consistently for a month or two. And just see what God does. Say, God, would you offer an opportunity? Would you give me an idea? And would you, would you give a little cracked door? And would you give me the courage when I see a cracked door to walk into it? Right? There are people that knock down doors. We don't, want you, don't, don't be knocking down doors. Okay? We don't need to be that aggressive about it. But there are also people like me that like, see a wide open door and are like, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. There's no door over there. Because I'm scared. I'm scared and I'm sheep. As I, I'm scared to think what they're going to think of me. And so Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which Christ prepared beforehand that you would walk into. You don't have to create them. He's already started them. He's already initiated them. You literally do your life and walk into them. That's what's so cool about the Great Commission. We hear the Great Commission and there's all those, there's all those participles. It's like, uh, I'll read it again. Um, it's kind of overwhelming. All authority, so God's given you authority. Now I'm giving it to you. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, right? That's a lot of verbs. Like, okay, which one is it? There's only one verb, and it's make disciples. All the other ones are participles off of that verb. Does that make sense? And so it's not go. That's not a verb. Go, and then make disciples, and then teach them, and then disciple them. It is as you go, make disciples. Is that not freeing? As you go about where you live, you work, and you play, you make disciples. And you do that by teaching the gospel, by identifying with Jesus Christ, asking good questions, being bold, praying, and then as people come to know Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Christ is with you all the while. So I hope, I hope that God is... Uh, two of my favorite evangelists in the scriptures are not who you would think. Not Paul, although he was awesome, or Peter, though he was bold, or John, though he was really sweet and saccharine and um, lovey-dovey. Uh, it is the woman at the well and the man born blind from birth. John 4 and John 8. Is it John 8 or John 9? The man born blind from birth. 9? John 9. Uh, woman at the well. She literally drops, you know, you know the story. She's avoiding people like the plague. She does not want to be seen. Has this encounter with Christ drops their bucket and runs to the town to the people she has been avoiding. That's why she's coming to the well at the heat of the day, because she doesn't want to bump into anybody. She's so covered in shame. And she says, come and see a man who, who told me everything about me. Come and see a man who told, knew me and loved me still. That's evangelism, friends. They come, they encounter Christ, and then they leave believing because they had their own encounters with Christ. That's, an, that's Amy evangelism. I can do that. I can say, come, right? It might not be this gifted Billy Graham evangelist or like my husband, but I can say, come. Come and let me tell you about this one who's loved me and has forgiven me or who's plucked me out of, out of brokenness and set me into a firm place. Come. Or the man born blind from birth, they just corner him and Jesus heals him and they just keep saying, well, who, who do you say that he is? Where is he? All these things. And he's like being kind of, intimidated by authorities, and he just keeps saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. All I know is I used to be blind, and now I see. That was his line. It's brilliant. I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. Apologetics, I don't know. Theology, I'm not so sure. 
I don't know that's uh, the, the um, theodicy, which is like the problem of evil. I don't know. But let me tell you what I do now. I used to be addicted to performance. And I used to have a really insecure identity. And I used to be terribly anxious. And now I'm walking in freedom because I know a God who's changed me. That's evangelism. That's the beginning of evangelism. And you can do that. We can do that. Um, now I'm completely off my notes. Okay. Um, yeah. What goes deepest in our hearts, in our lives, those roots, is the very thing that will go widest to the world. So it goes deep in us, and then it goes wide to the world. As we seek to reflect him and reach others, we will become more rooted. This is what's so cool about ministry, is that as you step out in faith and clumsy obedience, your roots grow deeper, right? Like there are times where I'm sharing the gospel with somebody and I'm like, I can't believe I believe this. This is crazy. I'm telling you that this man came to, God himself came to earth, was born a baby, lived a perfect life, died, rose again, and he's going to come back. And I'm like, this is incredible. I believe this. My faith is strengthened as I, as I try to share my faith with others. And so some of you aren't growing because you, you haven't ventured out into the family business. And so you're studying, you're reading all the books, and that's great. But there are certain things that you only will grow in as you step out in faith. Uh, George McDonald, he says this, that revelation always follows obedience. And so as I obey, God reveals more of himself. And as I obey, God reveals more of himself. So if you're reading all the books and you're like, it just feels dry, maybe, maybe there's an act of obedience, a small act of obedience that you have avoided and you haven't done. That's what motivates me, honestly, in evangelism sometimes, is I want more of you, and I don't think I'm going to get more of you until I obey you in this, because revelation follows obedience. So, Lord, I'm going to clumsily obey you because I want more of you. I'm not as mission-centric as my husband. He's incredible. That's what drives him. That doesn't drive me. Intimacy with Christ drives me. And if I get more of Jesus by doing this, I don't want to miss out on more of Jesus. I don't want to miss it, and I don't want you to miss it. So let me pray for us to that end, and then I think we've got another... Oh, no, I know what I wanted to do before we do that. I would like you to take three minutes of quiet, which is just a glorious thing in a group of women. Isn't that so fun? Um, three minutes of quiet, and, and ask, ask, ask a few questions of the Lord. Lord, is there one or two things from this weekend? One or two things from this weekend. Um that you want me to study, double doubt, like I was saying, I want to go back to John 15, that you're saying to me that I want to, I want to, I want to apply to my life. And then maybe, Lord, is there one or two people? Are there one or two people that you would put on my heart? And then, and what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You want me to pray? You want me to invite them to something? Do you want me to talk to them? You want me to make them a meal? You want to write them a note? What do you want, Lord? Because this is great. Women's retreats are so fun, but sometimes it's so much that we leave and we're like, that was great. What did you learn? I don't really know. It's just really fun. We had a good connection. I, I want you to have one or two things that you go, I want to take this little seed and I want to plant it. I want to just eat it for the minute and go, that was a good sunflower seed, thanks. I actually want to take it and I want to plant it and I want to water it and I want to see what God might do with it. Does that make sense? I don't want you to miss that and I don't want to miss that. So take two to three minutes and just ask those questions of the Lord and then I'm going to pray for us and then we'll move forward.
and close by praying Ephesians 4, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 for you and for me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, more than we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.